Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is our third episode and today we are going to go back to 1987 and talk about William Goldman's classic, The Princess Bride. As always, I am one of your co-hosts, I am Zachary Ortz, and I am joined by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matt, how's it going? Going pretty good, I'm excited to talk about this movie. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm pretty stoked about this. This is going to be really different than our last two, um, in which we, I think, we had consensus on how we felt about the movie, and this one's going to be a little different. I think. I guess we'll we'll find out how different as we get into it. But why don't we kick it off and start with your personal history with this movie? Yeah. So th- with this movie, um, I was thinking back to when I saw this movie. Um, and I think, I can't remember exactly when, but I'm pretty sure that I was 10 years old, uh, so that would have been in 1994, um, I had just moved to Nevada from Alabama, um, and I had my cousins that lived nearby that, um, they just, you know, they really liked the movie and I hadn't seen it before, and so they just turned it on randomly when, um, when I was visiting my grandma and it was like, just on, um, kind of in the background, and then I kind of started watching it and got absorbed with it, um, and I was hooked right immediately from the very first. Uh, it was immediately one of my favorite books, or my one of my favorite movies of all time, um, and it has stayed that way. I have it uh, as my 20th favorite movie of all time, which is very high on the list, um, and, you know, I think like most people, um, it's just an incredibly beloved film uh that i love dearly uh to this day uh yeah and just as a quick aside matt and i both have uh publicly viewable lists of all the movies that we've seen and where we have them ranked i'll put the links in the show notes and they'll have been in the show notes from the previous previous two episodes as well but just in case you're curious how how accurately Matt's <laughs> ranking of his 20th favorite movie was. It's uh, it's pretty accurate. So, yep. <laughs> so, yeah. And then my experience with this movie. So I had, I don't, I tried to ask my dad where we had gotten the book from, but I don't remember. The Princess Bride was one of my favorite books growing up. I probably had read it. 10 to 15 times and I didn't know there was a movie until I believe it was my freshman year of high school so that would have been 2001 and I was at someone's house I think it was a party even though I didn't really go to that many parties and I was really excited that someone said there was a movie of it I was like oh this is one of my favorite books And they put it on, and I hated it. It was not anything like what I was expecting based on the book that I had known and loved. And I, until I rewatched this movie this past week, I was pretty sure I had seen the entire movie. But now I think I actually had not. So I think I I noped out in the fire pits 
So I, th- I think this gotcha. was my first time watching the, the whole film. Yeah, watching the movie in full. So uh, it, it's something that I have told you with over the course of our friendship because it's, yes. I know that it's a movie that you love and it is a movie that uh, when we met, I hated. And as time has gone on, I softened a little bit, realizing it was likely some uh, misplaced ideas of what the film, misplaced expectations that caused me to hate the film. And uh, that if I rewatched it, I probably would enjoy it more. So I'll hold you in a suspense a little longer to see how I felt about it. But yeah, that's that's my experience with this movie. Yeah, it's a, a I've you said that you've trolled me with it, but I think it's gone the other way around a lot more um, because uh, so from my perspective, um, I don't really have a problem with, you know, people liking or not liking uh, films. Everybody has their own experience when they come to a film. So it's not surprising to me that that someone would have a different experience, especially if they came from the book, which they loved, and then came to the film. Uh, but it is kind of funny because, like, if I were to pick out the most universal, universally beloved film of all time that would be the least controversial favorite <laughs> of the vast population, this is the one it would be. And yet, um, you know, you're the possibly the one person that doesn't like this film. Uh, or has not historically not liked the film on Earth, and I just think it's f- amazing, and um, it just goes to show how different everyone's experience is when they come to uh, any piece of media. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that we are really big on. Is I certainly try to distance myself from um, that recognizing that there's a difference between whether or not something is good or bad and my experience with that thing and hopefully those things are going to line up but they don't always line up and we're not we humans not we you and me matthew and zach are not particularly good at disentangling and figuring out which is which so yeah and from my perspective it's it's hard to even say there is any kind of objective experience with the with the story everything is you know it's going to be subjective it's natural that people are going to have different experiences and i think that's a good thing uh that people are coming from different perspectives when when they're approaching something yeah so let's uh jump back a little bit to 1987 set the scene for this movie as it were um the we had pulled sort of four events from 1987 that stood out to us and the they're really in stark contrast with each other two are really not very hopeful and pretty uh turgid affairs so one is the second unabomber happened in 1987 and the other is the iran contra affair occurred um so those were obviously the two not so exciting ones and then do you want to give us the two that were a little more hopeful, shows a little more future and forward thinking. Yeah, so The Legend of Zelda was released on the NES in 1987, um, which is just a remarkable thing, and I think actually ties in with the the approach that this film has with fantasy and the genre. And then also, it was the first national coming out day in 1987, so that's amazing and wonderful. 
Yeah, and then sort of combined with the first National Coming Out Day, or at least um, we are n- not at the end. It would take uh, a long time to, and it's still something that <laughs> unfortunately we are dealing with in the world. But this 1987 was, I believe, when the first medicine was approved for uh to help try and combat the AIDS crisis, something that really had just ravaged um, New York City in particular and the gay community in New York through a lot of the 80s or all of the 80s. And so much of this is just, you know, this was during the the Reagan administration Mm -hmm. and it was a bleak time period in America in general. Um, And so... You can see that in the kinds of things that were going on, um, and I think it reflects a little bit in the uh, or a lot in the film as well. But uh, it's interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly easy to understand why you would want a nice little escapist adventure. Yes, uh, for your adventure. Um, All right, let's talk a little bit about the important personnel for this film. Uh, So first I have Rob Reiner, who is the director. This was Rob Reiner's fourth feature film as a director and his first as a producer. Uh, Immediately preceding this, we had This is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, and then The Princess Bride, which uh, immediately precedes his... Uh, smash hit when Harry met Sally and really kind of kicks off a run of extremely well-regarded movies so just running down those we have when Harry met Sally and then Misery and then A Few Good Men and then North and then The American President which brings us through to 1995 yes and um, so many of these movies are so well-regarded especially when Harry met Sally and a few good men just um, generally uh, in a lot of people's lists of favorite films of all time um, as is the Prince of Princess Bride obviously but at the time when the Princess Bride released it was not received with the same kind of reception and kind of became a cult classic later on no it, w- it was a uh, pretty mixed reviews at the time yeah yes exactly yeah and it kind of makes sense. I think that it's, you know, it's a weird metafictional story that um, I think people just didn't get at the time period. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and then I also wanted to highlight the screenwriter for this. So that's William Goldman. And William Goldman was kind of a jack of all trades. He wrote novels, he wrote screenplays, uh, he did some work on the Broadways, and he did, uh, he did some book doctoring for uh, Fiorello in 1960, which would later go on to win Best Musical. And then one of his other famous books, which is really famous in the theater community, is The Season, which follows uh, a Broadway, one entire Broadway season through its entirety so really a really really versatile writer and versatile um thinker and his involvement with movies is also just uh you know he's involved with the the princess bride he writes this and uh it's based on his book um but then he's also involved with a few good men 
uh, involved with Goodwill Hunting, uh, The Last Action Hero, which is another very metafictional, weird um, kind of story. Um, and I don't know, just he's uh, he's all over the place and constantly uh, doing different kinds of little weird projects here and there. Yeah, re- really, really cool career. You can just sort of lose yourself in his Wikipedia page if that's something that that's you want to do. Uh, and then I also wanted to highlight, I have to eat a little bit of crow here because when we did our Toy Story episode, I had remarked upon how rare it was for someone to go from sort of the singer-songwriter world and then move into film. And here we are in our third episode and already we've done it again. So I was pretty floored when the credits ran because I didn't look it up beforehand and saw that Mark Knopfler the lead guitarist and lead singer for Dire Straits, and then obviously went on to have a successful career, a successful solo career outside of Dire Straits. Uh, I was pretty shocked to see that he was the one who had written this score, and I didn't have a chance to go back and listen to it with that in mind. Um, but it, th- there was nothing about it other than maybe a... Um, high volume of sort of guitar stuff in the guitar folk world that would have made me think this was Mark Knopfler. Mark Knopfler, uh, or Dire Straits, has one of my favorite albums of all time, Brothers in Arms, and it, <laughs> it could not be more different than this score. So, Yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of... Um... It, it has this ballad at the end, the um, the storybook love ballad, and that ballad is uh, used constantly, kind of under this uh, uh, under the action that's going on throughout the film. Um, so oh, it kind of builds the up. As a, in they the do. Got so it. it's it's uh, in the underscore all over the place, um, including in the as you wish scene. Um, it's used there, and but it's used kind of softly. Um, and uh, but you see this theme popping up all over the place. What I, one of the other things though that uh, he uses a lot of uh, Mickey Mousing. I don't know if you're familiar what Mickey Mousing is. No, um, not. So it's uh, it comes from you know Mickey Mouse cartoons, but it's the idea that the score is matching the action that's on the scene. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 So usually you'll have a score and you're just going to have some music and it's not to, meant to draw too much attention to the music, but just represent the emotions. But uh, when you Mickey Mouse something, you'll have uh, like when Inigo comes and pounds on the door, the score is like doom, 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 right as he's pounding on the door. And so the music is matching what it is that he's doing. So there's a bit of that throughout this score. Yeah, it was enough that when I when I saw he had done it on the credits, I did wonder, and uh, Mark, uh, when you listen to this, I apologize if I'm impugning your abilities, but I did wonder, I was like, I wonder if he did that scoring or if he composed the melodies and then someone else fit it in. I just don't know, despite Brothers in Arms being one of my favorite albums, I don't know enough about his musical background or his um, non-rock capability to know if that's something that he would have wanted to do or if it's you know him giving the musical ideas and then someone else sorting it out later yeah i don't know it's it's hard to tell um i do love this score um it's 
a different kind of score because it's got the ballads and then it has like a, a lot of things that it does that are just kind of over the top and a little bit dramatic at a few scenes. Uh, but I think it fits the idea of what this is going for um, is kind of like this satirical metafictional thing. I think that the score uh, is really good for doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I found it very effective and I, I, I have a fondness. I didn't know the term Mickey Mousing, but I have a fondness for that type of underscoring. I just, uh, it fits my personal aesthetic. So it was something that I enjoyed. The last person that I wanted to talk about is obviously uh, Mandy Patinkin, probably mm -hmm. has the most famous line in this movie, although there are a lot of quotable moments, but this is the thing that Mandy Patinkin is most famous for, despite the fact that uh, he has won a couple Tony Awards, and I... I guess in my head, I hadn't ever thought about what year this movie was. So I assumed that this happened before he was famous or before Evita and Sunday in the Park with George had happened. But that's not the case at all. Evita was 1979, uh, which was his first real big breakout thing. And then he had several other movies and maybe some television stuff in the middle. And then he did Sunday in the Park with George in 1984. And then finally this in 1987, then as um, obviously has gone on to have an illustrious career from there. Secret Garden on Broadway and Criminal Minds and Homeland and plethora of other things. Yes, though not a, not a huge film career. Uh, and I generally find that people that aren't uh, familiar with the... Um, with musical theater or theater in general uh often don't know mandy patinkin even though he's had one of the most storied careers in uh you know in in broadway history yeah um i will drop a couple links of him singing in the show notes because if it is if you have not heard him sing before he has one of the most unique singing voices in the musical theater canon it is what once you hear him sing you will not mistake anyone else's voice for him or That's you will true. not That's mistake true. him for anyone else so yes and he manages to be in several of my favorite films or several of my favorite um things of all time he's just an incredible actor and it shows through and uh but there's a reason why you haven't seen him in movies all the time he's he's been doing theater uh so he doesn't have time for you know, uh, even though he has something like 30 movies on here, uh, but they're not as well known or regarded, most of them. So No, nothing with this level of uh, how well known it is, for sure. Yes, definitely true. All right. And then I, we're going to move into the meat of our podcast here, but there's one more person I have to mention, and that's because we have our very first Stream It crossover. We have Wallace Shawn, who plays Vizzini, and uh, I didn't know this, but I guess after Vizzini dies in this film, uh, he's going to be reincarnated as a toy dinosaur in eight years. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't make the connection, but I mean, it's obvious. It's a, his, his voice is so iconic, um, and you know, my favorite character in the Toy Story movies. Um, it just happens to be one of my favorite characters in, in The Princess Bride. Uh, 
So, yeah, I think this will be a fun little little thing for us to track the actors who who pop up in different roles. And I thought it was kind of cool that we had our first one uh, just three movies in. I love it. That's great. Uh, okay, so we're going to switch it up a little bit. We realized we probably should, before we jump into our discussion, just give a couple quick sentences about how this movie hit us this time through. Um, so why don't you go first, Maddie? Was there? I know it's a movie you've historically loved. Was there anything that moved you off of that opinion this time? Anything that surprised you? Anything? Uh, yeah, so... Any it was an interesting experience. Um, I've seen this movie probably close to a hundred times. Uh, I've seen it so many times to the point where, you know, it's when, when you've seen a movie enough times that you can, uh, you can quote the lines like to the bit rhythm and the beat, uh, of, of the way they're going. Um, but I remember I showed it to my kids a few months ago. Um, and, uh, I remember watching it with them and I, it just didn't land for me as well that time. And I was like, did Zach get in my head with this movie? And <laughs> am, I, am I not going to be able to love this movie anymore? Uh, and so I was nervous. And so I sat down and watched it this time. And nope, it didn't. Uh, this time completely moved. It had me like I, I finished watching the last oh like 20 minutes of this during my lunch break at work. And it had me crying in tears uh, as the movie was finishing. And I had students coming into my class. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I was just watching The Princess Bride. I couldn't help it. So um, I thoroughly loved it this time. Uh, and it reminded me of all the things that I loved about it. What did your, how did your kids find it when you watched it with them? They loved it. Yeah. They thought it was great. So, oh, so it uh, wasn't even that you were, you were stealing their emotions that you were affected by them when you, that time you watched it. Yeah, no, I was just in my head with it. So mm. I don't know. It was a, it was weird, but, um, yeah, it's a, I, I still loved it and it was wonderful. So uh good i would have felt really bad if i had taken away something that you that you loved from you uh no it's uh, no worries it's good um so i i definitely didn't hate it this time through i'm still parsing my feelings about this movie and i think i'm i'm hoping we're gonna try and come to some sort of answer about how I feel about this movie over the course of the podcast. Uh, There were moments that I just absolutely loved the almost all of the man in black sequences um, Mm -hmm. that uh, sword fight at the end, which we're going to talk about um, a lot of the adventure I was able to get really, really wrapped up in. Uh, But it, I, I think I still, I did expect that I was going to love it this time through, but I still felt that feeling of like anxiety and sometimes mm-hmm. like bordering on anger creeping up of like, ah, they just did not get the feeling that I had from the book and they did not get like this aspect that I wanted them to get or they did not. And I had I, I had to go back and like, download the book afterwards and read it to be like am i misremember am i misremembering certain sections or how how does this this sort of line up and so for me it was a real seesaw of like getting wrapped up in everything and then sort of getting like anxious and uncomfortable and yeah so i just mary asked my wife asked me after after i watched it she was like so how'd you find it and i was like I don't know. 
I I still don't know. Yeah, it's a, it's and I have read the book as well uh, a couple of times actually. Um, and you know, I think that William Goldman he is like he understands what he's doing with it, and he's trying to go for uh, some similar things, but it's it's not the same story. And I don't think even what you're supposed to getting, be getting out of the story is the same in the film adaptation as it was in the book. Um, I completely I th- agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's going for different, it's going for different emotions and different concepts. It's a it's, uh, uh, the bones of the story are similar, but everything else about it is so dramatically different. Um, when I first read the book, I had a little bit of, uh, I came to the book from the movie and it was a little bit jarring for me as i sat down to it i was like oh this is this is a bit different this is um a, a very different experience but uh then i was able to jump in because you know you're reading a book over a long period of time um it's you're able to do this a little bit easier uh but yeah it's a it's interesting what i think what is like so jarring to me is normally if you're watching an adaptation and you feel like it isn't capturing the feeling that you had while you were reading the book. There's this sense of like, oh, those horrible adapters ruined the yeah. the author's vision. But I, you can't even think that with this one. So because it like, as you said, it clearly was a deliberate choice. And this time through, um, we'll get into talking about some of the scenes here in a minute. This time through, there, I was able to have a little bit more intellectual approach and realize, oh, you know, if they had probably done a lot of this from the book, it would have been pretty horrible. Like it just, a lot of it just wouldn't have worked. It, it, would, and, it would be kind of a disaster as a movie. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I think you could have made basically the book into a movie and it would have been okay, but it wouldn't have been... Um, it wouldn't have been like this movie that is has become one of the most beloved movies in like the film canon, um, and you know he's making deliberate choices in order to achieve that, and I think they're actually really clever choices that he makes. But yeah, yeah, I that I, that's one of the things that I do want to talk to you about because there are some that mystify me, and I think you'll be able to help me sort of understand a little better what what to appreciate about those choices um so let's get in here and talk about our the first scene that we wanted to talk about this opening opening sequence so just like any adventure story we open with a kid sick in bed and his mom saying that his grandpa is here Uh, i think we actually probably open on sort of fitting for the movie that came out the year that Zelda came out, we open on a frame of an NES baseball game. Yeah, it's a, you know, that NES baseball game, um, it's, I remember that image from that game has stuck in my memory so clearly from the first experience of watching it. Like, I can remember my grandma's house and seeing that image come up on the TV and Mm -hmm. where I was sitting when this happened. I don't know, it's wild, so. Yeah, so let's, so the... The framing device for this movie is this idea of a kid who's sick and his grandfather is going to come and tell him a story, a story that has been told by 
paternalistic figures in this family to kids' sons specifically, I believe, when they are sick throughout mm-hmm. their throughout the generations. And there is some hesitancy on by the kid in this case, doesn't really want to hang out with grandpa. Grandpa's gonna pinch his cheek and make him not feel good. But by the end of the movie, of course, this kid falls in love with the story and is going to be won over. Yeah, and this framing device is so essential to this film adaptation because uh, it's it's really easy as you sit down, like you're in the place of the kid uh, and his reluctance to read the story. And it, he just is not, it, you know, he's not into what it is that his grandfather is doing. He's not, uh, it makes this clear, like, um, juxtaposition between the video games and the movies and television. And then the story that they're going to be creating through the book that they are reading. Um, and the way that his grandfather is telling the story and the experience between them. Um, and I will say, I think this is one of the areas where uh, right away you see this huge divergence from the book. Uh, mm-hmm. Because the, the, the book also takes this kind of frame story uh, approach. Um, but it, it's approaching it as like uh, in, the, in the book, uh, the, the narrator, the author, um, has, has heard the story many times over his life. And then discovers like the original version and realizes that it's not exactly the same as what his father would read to him. Um, and yeah, it it's actually William Goldman himself. Like, yes, exactly. He has put yeah. himself as as a character, and yeah, he and so the book that you get and you read is his abridged history or his abridged version, because he gave the unabridged version to his son and his son was like, what is this? This is horrible. And then he was like, Oh yeah, I can fix it up. I can just put a few notes in here. I'll cut, uh, (laughs) these long sections and yeah. Yeah. And so what, what I find fascinating about this is they're both these metafictional stories that are approaching the concept, the, the, they're telling stories about telling stories, but they're Mm -hmm. approaching them in very different ways. Uh, one of them is looking at like the way that you might, um, you know, the the process of telling a story, um, and the way that you can take something and kind of create a different kind of magical experience uh, when you when you love a story, but you know you're you're bringing your own things to it. But the story with the grandpa and his son is approaching it in a very different way, um, and it's looking at this way that um, we we take a story and then we're creating. Uh, the the world of the story in our minds and that experience that you're doing as that is happening and uh, f- for me those are two different approaches to a similar kind of concept yeah and I think it's easy this is one that makes a ton of sense to me and is immediately obvious or at least immediately obvious as an adult why they would choose to do this if the book mm-hmm is an abridged version of a book uh it makes sense why you would change that um to be something that can be shown on on screen a little well it's it's uh it's easy to show someone reading out loud it's not very easy to show someone uh writing footnotes in a book so (laughs) yeah that's true that's definitely true so um yeah so and 
I love the the frame story that's going on here as well, um, and just the the relationship between this grandson and the grandfather, uh, and the way that the book brings them together, um, and you get this impression that they aren't so much at the start of the story. Yeah, I think so. I think I think that I think it's more than an impression, as the the kid doesn't want to see their grandfather. Yeah. at the beginning and then at the end they say hey can you can you come back tomorrow yeah. um and i think the framing device adds something that is not at least i don't recall it being evident in the book there's a really nice parallel between the story of the kid connecting with his grandfather connecting with his uh paternalistic fig- figure and then the story that really carries a lot of the heart for the fantasy tale, uh, Inigo Montoya avenging mm-hmm. his father and forging the connection with the dad that he does not have that was taken from him. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, there's a it's very well constructed uh, in the way that it does all of that. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say about the framing device? I don't. Um, the, there's other thoughts that I have, but they kind of tie in with the other scenes as we're going. So uh, as we get into the other one, I think there's some threads, I think, that are going to kind of go through all of this. Sure. Why don't we move on to the next scene, which I think was yours, so you can go ahead and... Yeah, so this is a classic scene. It's the way that the the story of the the book that the grandfather is reading uh, to his grandson starts off with the scene between uh, Wesley and Buttercup where they're, you know, at this farm and he's just like a farm boy. Uh, He's literally called farm boy. Um, And then he talks to her and he says, as you wish to her uh, and continues to say, as you wish, as you wish comes over and she realizes that when he's saying, as you wish, it means that uh, it means I love you. Um, and it's fascinating the, the response that the son has to this. He's like, oh, is this going to be a kissing book? And he's like, you know, just sit down. You, you know, you're here. We're going to read the book. You're sick. Um, this is what we're doing. And there's kind of this tension uh, at the beginning. But there's this moment at the end of this scene uh, at the beginning where uh, Wesley turns over to Buttercup and he tells her... Um, uh, he's, you know, going to go on a journey, um, and she's worried that he won't make it back safely, and he says, this is true love, you think this happens every day, as he promises that he will be coming back to her, um, and so what I find fascinating about the, this is, uh, and what I find fascinating about Wesley as a character is he seems to me to be the character that has an understanding of the structure of a story more than mm-hmm. any of the other characters in, in the book. Um, and a lot of the actions he takes throughout the story, he's acting with this kind of um, narr- uh, metafictional kind of plot armor. Um, he knows that this is, because it's true love and this is a story, that things are going to be okay because he'll make it back in the end eventually, because that's how stories end. Um, and Wesley seems to be the only one that really understands this about what's going on with this whole narrative. Yeah, which is kind of interesting then because it puts um, 
it, it doesn't give him the opportunity to have the refusal. Instead, it gives it to, um, to, to Buttercup, Buttercup yeah. mm-hmm. which, uh, again, the Buttercup is, I think Wesley serves the majority of the protagonist functions in the story, but Buttercup takes a lot of actions as well. And so I know we talked about it for Toy Story, how the two of them had dueling protagonist roles, but I think it was a conscious choice for the movie to give Buttercup more agency than she has in the book, which is... Uh, Almost none, yeah. Yeah, pretty pretty lacking. Um, it's true. So You know, I, I, I think that Wesley, even in a lot of ways... Uh, like, I don't know that I would even say he's mostly the protagonist of the book. In a lot of ways, he serves kind of a more of a mentor figure for mm-hmm. a lot of what's going on throughout this story. You think he's mentoring Buttercup through? Uh, yeah, Buttercup, but also Inigo. Um, and so, it, like, for example, when they get to the part where they're chasing, uh, where he's chasing later on... Um, there's he kind of has these interactions with each of the characters where he's essentially kind of um, teaching them a little bit more about themselves and about the world that they're in and all of those things um, rather than taking the actions that are driving the plot forward like everyone's trying to escape him um, later on in the story in the when he's the man in black you mean yes when he's the man in black yes mm. yeah it I, I think it's I think it's difficult for me to get out of my book mindset for that because the when he's the man in black that really takes up like the majority of the book though yes. each of those three are sort of I think that takes us to about the halfway point of the book but it really feels like the three trials even though there's a lot left to come uh beating uh, the Spaniard, and then beating the Sicilian, and then beating Vizzini. So yeah, I think I think I think that's accurate. It is a, it is a bit different um, in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's a he he's a fascinating character, and uh, like for example, it kind of um, it, when we get to the end of the story, he really gets kind of uh, stripped of so much of his. Uh, power and his ability um, mm-hmm. and everyone kind of has to make actions to drive the plot forward uh, with him essentially functioning as baggage for the the uh, the third act of the film um, and it's just interesting how you take this character who uh, feels like he's supposed to be the protagonist and then strip all of the power away from him um, and have all of the other characters doing the actions that drive the plot forward in that third act yeah, I guess that makes sense. And I, you also don't ever see him. Uh, you don't ever see him really learn or gain anything. That all happens off screen. And so, I, w- I guess I was conceiving of him. His leveling up was helping everyone else to learn things, but. There, it, it it's simpler to view that as those people are learning them, and then as you said, he's just the mentor. So, yeah, I I do think he is partly a protagonist, but he's kind of doing this dual role 
at the same time. Um, yeah, as a I lot th- of characters are in this in this film. Yeah, I think the thing that stuck out to me the most when I was watching this movie that really just felt like what the movie was just screaming to me was that it was subverting all of your expectations of what a movie called The Princess Bride would do, right? Opening yes. with the um, opening with the framing sequence, having the dad, the, the son cut in all of the time to interrupt the story at the most dramatic parts. And then the, I, I was trying to think like how fresh that moment when the man in black, when Wesley is climbing the cliff and Inigo is talking to him and, you know, they're, they've agreed that they're going to fight to the death, but they're being very gentlemanly about it. Like, yeah. I'll wait up here for you, but just so you know, when you get here, I'm going to have to kill you. Oh, that's a huge bummer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, really I had never seen anything like it when I watched it. Um, so, but again, I watched it when I was 10, so I don't know, you know, how many people have done this kind of thing before, uh, before The Princess Bride did it. But I think that, uh, I think a lot of people do kind of get uh, introduced to this idea of, like, deconstructive metafiction um, mm-hmm. through The Princess Bride. Um, and like you said, it's, so much of it is deconstructing your typical kind of fairy tale or adventure tale. Um, and so many, I think this is why so many of the characters have kind of a dual function to them, where they're presented as, the, as Wesley seems to be presented as the protagonist, but he also takes on this mentor role at so many different places. Um, and then you have, um, you have Inigo, who's supposed to be, you know, an antagonist. Um, but then does this hero turn at the end of the story? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have this same thing with uh, Buttercup, who seems to be being presented as the ingenue, but then uh, takes a lot of the actions that drive the story forward as a protagonist um, throughout some of the other things. Even though she doesn't have a lot of power uh, in the choices that she's making, she does drive a lot of the action of the story, despite not having a lot of the power to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to say anything else about the this as you wish scene, this opening fantasy scene? That's all I've got for that one. All right, so let's move on to the next scene that I wanted to talk about. So this is the poison scene with Vizzini, our uh, pre-resurrection dinosaur, and the so this is immediately following the Man in Black successfully outdueling Inigo Montoya and then successfully out strengthening the what's his name I'm just thinking Andre the Giant who portrays him but that is Fezzik uh, yeah out strengthening yeah, Fezzik. <laughs> Fezzik I was so concerned about uh, Fezzik's name but totally fine using out strengthening on the podcast <laughs> and then we have this poison scene with Vizzini and so this yes uh he he approaches Vizzini and Vizzini has a knife to Buttercup's throat and the man and says don't come any closer or I'll kill her and the man in black essentially challenges him to a battle of wits and they agree that they're gonna pour wine and then 
the man in black ostensibly poisons one of the cups and places them in front of them and it becomes a mind game with Vizzini over which one has the poison and then they drink them and it turns out haha gotcha I've been developing poison the immunity against this poison for the last two or three years and Vizzini dies and Wallace Shawn completely chews up the scenery on this on this on this scene he just makes a meal out of this and uh it's such an incredible acting performance it's it just when he's going back and forth essentially having an argument with himself uh, and it's so dynamic and so, I don't know, he, he does such an incredible job with that scene. It's a, it's a great performance. Um, the reason I wanted to talk about this scene was because this is, this is probably the first big choice that I don't understand why they made this choice for the movie. And so maybe you can help me understand it in the, in the book. And I went back and reread it just to make sure my memory wasn't being faulty. But I don't think the portrayal of Vizzini is of a hapless leader. I, th- I think the portrayal in the movie is like he's the leader, but he just ended up being the leader because that's what he is. But he doesn't actually have the startling intellect that he's supposed to have. And it i i was curious about the choice to make it so that he actually was not that smart because you do see like it does establish that the man in black is an excellent fencer and then it does establish that he is strong and has been training and is able to uh take down the giant but then the his him outwitsing Vizzini is sort of it's played for laughs in more of a way than than the yeah. other two are. Um, and so the, well, I agree with you. I loved Wallace Shawn's performance here and it's very easy. Wallace Shawn, did I say that right? Yeah, yeah, Wallace yes. Shawn. And while it's very easy to see how his performance became so iconic, uh, I guess it did feel a little disingenuous to me. It felt a little... The, the uh, character in the novel is definitely uh, much more menacing. Um, and kind of a terrifying figure in a lot of ways because, you know, he he does have multiple um, places where he is shown to be outwitting people um, and to be very intelligent, and so he's facing off of the... And it gives you this impression um, that the man in black is nervous multiple times. It it says the man in black was nervous or he was worried or he Mm -hmm. seemed taken aback or whatever it might be. Um, and that doesn't seem to come across in the film. Uh, it seems like uh, Carrie Elwes in his performance as the Man in Black um, is maintaining confidence throughout that entire scene and is never really uh, worried um, or even necessarily in danger. Um, uh, Vassini seems to think that he's outwitted him, but I, I don't think you're ever supposed to feel real fear for the Man in Black in that scene the way it's portrayed in the film, whereas you do in the book. Yeah, and I think in the book there's a little more uh, subterfuge in terms of who the man in black is in the in the movie. It's kind of obvious who he yeah, is. I, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is true. Um, so I think 
my thoughts on the on that perspective and the choice. I think this is actually a brilliant choice from William Goldman, mm-hmm. and it ties in with what I was looking at earlier. Is that um, Wesley, the character, the who is the man in black, um, understands? You know, he. I, I think it's an instinctual thing. Like it's not that he knows that he's a character in his story. Like uh, he's not breaking the fourth wall, um, like a Deadpool character might or something. But he seems to understand that he has some kind of. Uh, protection, some kind of invincibility, some kind of mm. uh, inevitability in what's going to be happening because um, of his role within the story and his, because it is a story about true love. Um, and so uh, when he's fighting, uh, when he's fighting Inigo, he does it with complete confidence and you're never really in doubt that he's going to, that he's going to win the fight because he, he manages, manages it so incredibly well. Um, and you see this confidence so clearly in him. He has this moment briefly with Fezzik where he seems a little bit worried, but quickly gets the upper hand. Um, and throughout the film, even later on in the story, um, Wesley has this just complete assurance and confidence that everything is going to work out fine in the end, whereas all the other characters are in doubt. They seem to not understand, like, uh, they're worried about the outcome. They're worried about what's going to happen. Whereas Wesley always knows he's going to find Buttercup. Um, it's going to work out in the end. Who knows what the journey is going to be to get there. But this is a true love story. And true love doesn't happen every day. And so he'll overcome all of the obstacles, including uh, the Sicilian who's uh, in this battle of wits. Um, things will work out because, of course, he has this background with Iocane powder that he's prepared beforehand. So the, he's protected by the plot in this case. Yeah, I, although I will say I think we have there is one moment where Wesley falters, and I know it's not a scene we had uh, said we would talk about, but it's actually the next scene, and I I think it makes yes. sense with your with your premise, but there is that moment where he has to question Buttercup and make sure that he's not wrong, make sure that she really does love him because. Uh, she did agree to or at least as far as he thinks did agree to marry the prince and so he it's probably the most menacing that he is in the movie it is is yes i agree when he's questioning her and you know saying how long after you found out your love was dead did it take you to run to agree to marry the prince and yes, I agree. And then, but right as as soon as she clarifies that she did love him the whole time and pushes him over the hill and he says, as you wish, from that moment on, he's confident and yep. he's the same uh, Wesley that is completely confident in his role in the story until he gets captured and tortured by the machine. Um, yeah. And then he's completely, all of his power is completely taken away and he no longer has that same ability and confidence Um uh, and, you know, he's so weak he can't even really hold a sword. Uh, and he has to project all that confidence, um, even though he... the At that point, you don't feel necessarily that the story is protecting him anymore. He has to... Uh, he has to do that on his own a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. So. Uh, the, I have a couple other things that I just wanted to mention quickly before we jump to the last scene that we wanted to talk about did you bump it all on him uh lifting his hand oh yeah oh yeah threaten to smack her 
Yeah, I mean, it's that was super menacing when it happened, and I was like, mm, that's weird, and I'm not sure that I liked that when I saw it originally, and I do not think it holds up super well. Um, one of the one of the things in this film that I just I don't know, it's such a weird choice, and I don't uh, I don't really get what they're. I mean, I get what they're going for, but I don't get why they would go for that. Yeah, my sense was it was 1987, and he doesn't actually hit her, and he's playing the role that he's playing of the Dread Pirate Roberts. Right, exactly, yeah. And I just, I don't know, I don't... That scene just doesn't sit with me, sit well with me, and it never has. Um, yeah. I'm just like, it, it, you know, if he pretends to do it, and it, what does he say to her? He says, uh, "Where I come from, there are penalties when it, where when a woman lies." And I'm yeah. like, that didn't go. I don't, I don't <laughs> think that sounds the way you want it to sound. I, like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a big fan of that at all. So, I mean, there can't be that many penalties. You only have. 10 fingers and 10 toes to lose like <laughs> uh yeah so i don't know yeah that one uh still uh does not hold up very well and the other thing i i just want to say this is a tangent we didn't have it written down but the other thing that for me doesn't hold up very well and it kind of bugs me every time is i think that it's i don't know if you notice this but to me it seems like uh, prince humperdinck and count rogan are queer coded um and mm. i don't know i don't know if it seems like that to you uh, it was not something that I noticed, but I know that um, with this era, it's something that I've read critique of from this era of films, particularly the 90s uh, Disney mm-hmm. movies, having queer-coded villains in somewhat gross ways. Yeah, and it it just it seems to me like uh, Humperdinck and Rogan are it seems like they're in a relationship uh, from my perspective, um, and it seems like uh, Prince Humperdinck it 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 doesn't seem like he's ever really that interested in Buttercup. He's only using her like as a pawn in his political motivations. Uh, but there are a yeah. lot of scenes where Count Rogan and Humperdinck show like genuine affection for each other, um, and. So I don't know. It it just comes across that way. So those are those are the two scenes that or the two things where he lifts his hand there, um, and then the other one just it, it seems to me like the villains are queer coded, and that doesn't quite sit right with me. So yeah, yeah, I I would agree with you. Although it was not something I bumped on when I was watching. Um, did I miss how? Did I miss Inigo? explaining how he got the sword uh you must it's it's that scene right when they get to the top of the mountain uh and he gives him a chance to sit down um and he explains to him the sword and where he got it from and that his uh, father made the sword and then count rogan came to uh take it and you know um uh slice it slice his face but, but then he, how did he get the sword after that yeah but he lost the duel yeah i don't know I don't know. I don't think it yeah. explains that. So I don't. I don't. Rem- my memory is that the book does explain it, but honestly, I didn't reread that section. Um, the book, uh, the each of these backstories get 
it, it's like full POV chapters. Yes. Like you yes. you get to meet Domingo. Domingo. Yeah, Domingo yes. Montoya, right? Yeah, Domingo Montoya. Get, yes. Yeah, you you get to spend a lot of time with them. Um, and I when I read the book, that was something that was very cool to me. It was like stories in stories in stories. It felt uh, felt really exciting. Um, yeah, and then, it's a that is one of the things that stood out to me when I had uh, read the book afterwards um, and getting the the story of uh, of Inigo and all the everything that goes through it with uh, with that. So I agree. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter how how he got the sword. I just didn't know if I had missed it because I don't know the film as well as you do. Um, I think and, you're right. I don't think they cover it. And then the other thing that was funny, uh, I mean, how would they know? But Inigo asks the man in black why he's wearing the mask, and he says it's comfortable. I think everyone will be using them in the future. It's it's, it's prophetic. Yeah, it was. So, yeah. How did they know? Yeah. It's it's great. So, um, all right. I think about Let's... that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> do people ask you at school and that's your answer i do i use that one all the time right that people talk about the masks and they're like how long do you think we're going to be wearing these Mm, i don't know i think in the future everyone will be wearing them they're terribly comfortable so (laughs) (laughs) so good all right let's let's talk about our last scene here which is yours yeah so i think this is um most people's favorite scenes in the movie um and the best scene in the movie yeah, yeah I, in my opinion, it's the best scene, and I think it's one of the best scenes just in any movie that I've ever seen. Uh, it is the scene where Inigo finally confronts Count Rogan, um, the six-fingered man, um, and it starts with this, they get into the castle, uh, and he sees, he, he sees Count Rogan across the way, and he tells him, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, raises the sword, and then uh, Count Rogan just runs away. Um, and he has to chase him through the castle until he gets down into the, uh, until he gets into like the, a dining hall, throws this knife at him and hits him in the gut. And you're like, he's dead. He has no chance here. Right. And it goes away and the music is just like, yeah, I mean, give up on this guy. We're count, we're going to go over to see what's happening with the man in black, but that story's done. And it's just, it feels like a gut punch and you're, you're feeling bad for it in a go. Uh, he gets back up and he repeats, uh, he repeats, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, uh, until he backs Count Rogan up. But the, the thing that always gets me is the, this moment, where he gets him back against the wall, slices his cheek, and he says, give me money. And Count Rogan mm-hmm. says, oh yeah, anything that you want. And power, give me power. Um, whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. And then he grabs him, shoves the knife into, or the sword into him, and says, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. And that's the moment that really gets me from that scene, um, because it's just, I don't know, it's just such an iconic scene. It really is. Yeah, it's great. Um, it, the Once again, it does the subverting of expectations that we've already talked about that this movie has set up. Uh, and I, again, I don't think I've seen the ending, so, and I... In the book, he runs as well, but I had forgotten. And so I was like ready and raring to go. I was like, okay, here we go. We're going to get this sword fight between these two legendary 
uh, fencers. And then he just turns and runs. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's such a, it's such a great scene. And, uh, you know, that moment where he, like, shuts the door. And he's, like, slamming against the door. He's like, Fezzik, I need your help. I can't get him. He's behind the door. Um, just, a, just a great scene. Yep. And so. I do... I do want to take a moment to talk about uh, Mandy Patinkin's performance here. It is the iconic line of the movie. Uh, it's a line that he, at least when I saw him in concert uh, for the first time in high school, so it would have been 2003, I believe, uh, he ended his concert by performing this line. Like, post-encore, this was the last thing he said. Um, but and we were we were lucky enough because um, I went to a performing arts high school. We got to go backstage and talk to Mandy after the show, and he said something. He said that what makes you special as a performer is your sensitivity, and that is something that you have that nobody else has and yeah i think he was probably projecting a little bit of himself onto us because i don't know that i would say that was true of all of us but it's something that i think of a lot whenever i watch his performances because man yeah goes deep like he he does he feels the stuff that he feels and he has no shame about it and it is it's easy to imagine this scene going south. It's easy to imagine the repetition of this line not landing in the way it does. But, I mean, he knows it. He can feel it, and it's perfect. Like, he does yeah. it extremely well. <laughs> Just one of the the best acting performances that I've ever seen. Um, and it, there's a reason why it's so iconic. Um, and like you said, it's, it's a line that could easily have fallen flat. Um, and I think that for, you know, 95% of performers, it wouldn't have worked. Um, but Mandy just delivers it so incredibly well. Um, so I, I think we probably wanted to mention the story of how, uh, of his thoughts and his feelings behind that, um, that iconic line delivery. Um. And, and this is a story that he has told many different times in many different places. I know recently it showed up as a TikTok, but I saw mm-hmm. it uh, in an interview uh, many years ago that he talked about um, that when he was doing that performance, uh, giving that line, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, that the way that he uh, got into character and the way he was thinking about it was he was thinking about his father who had just recently died uh, of cancer. Um, and so he was, um, as he was preparing for the scene and he tells the story that, um, on the day when this showed up, he had it marked on his calendar. He called his wife before he went in and he told her, this is the day I'm finally going to do it. I'm, and he was imagining the cancer as being Count Rogan. Um, and so he called her beforehand. Um, and then he was out in the courtyard speaking to, his father, um, um, you know, in his mind, uh, saying, this is it, Dad, I'm, I'm here, I'm going to get the cancer that got you, um, 
this is this is the day I'm ready for this. And that's what he was doing before he came in uh, and did that line delivery for that for that moment in the film. Yeah, I have never been a proponent of emotional state being required for acting or anything nearing method. But if there's anyone who makes me doubt <laughs> that conviction, <laughs> it's the performance of Mandy Patinkin. Because you see the results. Like, it does feel different. It does seem different than everyone else. And I don't know. It might just be that I'm a stand for him and I just love him too much and think he can't do anything wrong. Uh, well, but yeah, I think that maybe some perspective on that is he's not he's not doing the method for... I don't think he's doing the method for the audience. Like, he's not doing that so that he can do a good performance. I think for him, he's doing it for himself, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, there are some stories of, I think, particularly Wild Party, where... Uh, <laughs> welcome to New Jersey. Uh, there are some stories from particularly Wild Party, which he did off-Broadway, where I think things maybe got a little out of hand, where he was playing alcoholic jealous lover so i i don't well, think yeah, it's yeah. always been copacetic but uh, yeah i'd say uh, uh i'm not speaking to to the way he maybe um uses method acting or whatever it might be uh in other things but i think in this instance i i think that what makes it feel so good and ma makes it so powerful is that he is like it is a meaningful experience for him specifically if that makes sense um yeah uh, I think that a lot of times where method kind of can get detached is when you're just doing it because you're trying to get like a, a meaningful performance out of it. Um, this was real emotions that he was bringing to it kind of naturally um, and not uh, not just developed through uh, through a method. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does make sense. So uh, in any case, this is uh, I always think about this one. Um, you know, for me, it's a it's a really powerful scene as well, and I think for a lot of people, when I think about it from this perspective, you know, it's a um, uh, having lost people that I love in my lifetime, and hearing Mandy talk about his experience with this film, um, and uh, I I lost now I think it's nine years now. Uh, my sister passed away, um, and she loved The Princess Bride, and it was one of her favorite films as well. Uh, and so whenever I hear Mandy talk about that experience and his, uh, the way he did perform that line, that's what always comes rushing back to me is I think of my sister and watching that film with her and she loved films. And it was one of the things that we loved to do together was just watch random, whatever films we ended up watching. Uh, so I think about that every time I see this film and see this performance from Mandy Patinkin. Yeah, it's a it's a great performance. Um, there's a couple other things that I wanted to talk about from this scene. One of them is there's... I feel like it's probably one of the most hit and miss tropes from movies, but this trope, as you said, of thinking that the hero is so badly hurt that they just can't do anything... Yes. And then through sheer force of will, they rally and are able to do the impossible. Like it's a situation where 
it was already going to be a difficult fight if they were at had all of their faculties and then they're stripped down to like one percent but then they yes. managed to win anyway and, and <laughs> uh, this scene really goes just completely all out on that um, oh it does yeah it, and it's uh, even more than in most cases because he's not even able to fight he's only able to to stand and hold the sword and pretend like he's able to fight yeah it i i wish i had some gripping analysis for why they are able to make this one work because every time i've run it through in my head i'm like oh it really just shouldn't work like he's so far yeah. down but I, I think it's the music i think it's mandy i think i think it happens with a speed that just doesn't really let you catch your breath a speed and intensity and so even though like maybe your brain is trying to say hey this isn't realistic hey this isn't realistic it's just going fast enough that you, your brain doesn't have time to catch up and so the emotion just sweeps you away and you know when he does the first parry you're like yeah 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 it, it's a uh, and it's just um and the way that he mirrors everything that count rogan uh was doing mm-hmm. um you know he he stabs him in the shoulders that he got stabbed in uh and then he slashes him across the cheeks um it's uh there's so much emotion that's that's put in and it feels like when you watch this scene like the fur until he gets up and really does that first really strong parry uh, mm-hmm. and knocks it to the side and the music goes along with it if you're like did he do that on accident like did he yeah. block that first one and it went in into his shoulder did he even try there and then the other one goes and then he gets up and he's kind of stumbling forward you're like that's not like this isn't he's not doing this this isn't on purpose is it and then all of a sudden he gets stronger and stronger as he goes uh through the conviction uh, as he's saying hello my name is Inigo Montoya you killed my father prepare to die yeah I don't know if you remember the way this scene ends in the book um I don't know I can't remember it is I man I understand why they didn't do it in the movie because it's pretty brutal uh but God, I wish there was a take. Maybe there is. Maybe they did film it. But he says a line. It's when he asks him, you know, he's like, what do you want? And he's doing those lines. And then he stabs him above the heart, stabs him below the heart, says another line, stabs him to the left of the heart, says another line, stabs him to the right of the heart. <laughs> and he says, no, I've cut out your heart the way you took mine. And oh, jeez. Yeah, that's intense, too. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah and i'm like oh man what i would have what i would give to be able to see mandy do it that way but yeah i i it just feels it's not like the it, movie they were going for and it feels like it just i don't know that it would land um uh, i don't think it would it feels like it would be too melodramatic in a film just like because he has that moment where he just shoves the short sword up into him uh and you know i don't know it feels like they just wanted to really just end it on that last note there um, and not draw it out too much from there. Um, I had one other thing I wanted to comment on for the movie that maybe you can help me get past. And I did go back and check to see if it was in the book, and it is, it is not. And it's this scene where... Um, 
Wesley is lying in bed and Count Rogan comes in. Uh, Prince Humperdinck comes in. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Prince Humperdinck comes in. Yeah. Uh, and they're having their uh, to the pain conversation. Yes. And the Wesley insults Humperdinck. And Humperdinck says, that may be the first time a man has ever insulted me. And I really bumped on this line because it it seemed too... It didn't seem like it was a line we needed. It seemed a little too self-aware for Humperdinck. Maybe. I don't know. I just... So when, I, when I've seen it in the past, I, I think I kind of get where you're going with it. Yeah. Um, but when I've seen it in the past, the way it landed for me the first time and the way I usually think about it is he's just a person that has had so much privilege in his life that um, he's never encountered anyone that has actually stood up to him um uh, anyone that's actually challenged him in any way so he just has this feeling of invincibility because of the privilege that he's had throughout his entire life yeah i feel like it almost even would be better though if like you just saw him crumble and wesley said is that the first time someone's ever insulted you in your life? You know, it just felt a little, I don't, when your life cracks like that, I don't know that you have the self-awareness to uh, diagnose what's happened, you know? Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I definitely do. I'm, I'm trying to remember in the scene, it feels like at that point he's still, he still thinks that Wesley can't fight back against him. Um, because he says afterwards, you're bluffing. Um, I, I think he says that before or after, uh, the insult. So I think he still has some kind of confidence there, uh, and thinks that he's going, I don't think he's defeated yet is what I'm thinking, but I can't remember for sure. It, yeah, sure. It's his coping mechanism where he's trying to regain control of the right. room. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is probably... A reading I could, I could use to justify that, on a, on a rewatch. But it was it was something that I that I bumped on, um, and it, honestly, it was uh, for all of the various roller coaster of feels um, that I had over the course of the movie. There was not a ton that I bumped on, to be honest. It felt pretty tight, to me. I mean, I guess that's what happens when you have a fantastical framing device that is going to uh can be used to explain anything right but. yeah exactly so uh yeah it's true all right uh do you have anything else you want to say about the movie i don't have anything else to say about the movie you know i just i encourage people to go stream it check it out uh, on disney plus um you know it's it, it was acquired in that fox merger and so um, having it on there is just, it's, it's a real treat being able to, to pull it up and watch it. And, uh, it's one that holds up, um, for, you know, you can watch it in a lot of different circumstances, you know? Uh, so I encourage everyone to take a chance at that and, uh, go give it another watch if you haven't seen it for a while. Yeah. And Hey, if it was one of your most hated movies of all time, uh, maybe it's worth a rewatch. <laughs> sounds good awesome uh well as always you can find me on twitter at z v a z d a 
And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, and you can reach out there if you want to say something personal to one of us. Uh, I apologize once again for the motorcycles. Um, By the time the show goes live, I will have an email address set up, so you can find that in the show notes if you want to send us any long-form thoughts. The the way we've sort, just as a quick programming note, the way we have made this viable for us is we are banking some amount of episodes so that we can make sure that we release on a consistent schedule, but everything doesn't go down the tubes if, you know, one of us just has a life thing that, yeah, it's, it's a lot of time to watch a movie and prepare for the movie and then block out time to talk to each other. So we want to make sure that our, uh, eight eight movie season is tidally compacted so to that end if there's any feedback or anything that we said about a movie that was horrifically dumb or horrifically stupid or horrifically uninformed we definitely do want to be able to address that so shoot us an email and then if we do get any feedback of that sort for stuff we want to address we'll do a bonus episode in between seasons where sort of a mailbag episode where we respond to uh, any any emails we've gotten and hopefully don't have to correct too many too many, too many mistakes on our end yeah. yeah and just just you know zach pointed out all the things you could email us for but if you have some nice things to say you can also email for that um if you thought we were particularly astute or really understood something well let us know we'd love to have our ego stroked uh, that sounds wonderful Yep, absolutely. And uh, that'll be in the show notes. So, all right. Do you have a closing question, Matt? I do. So, my question is if you were going to devote 20 years of your life to the study of something to get revenge, what would you end up choosing? Hmm. Can I? I assume I can't pick piano. That's the that's uh, the obvious answer for me. It is the obvious an- answer. It's it's something you could you, you could probably best the man in black at. Um, uh, okay, no, I think I would spend those twenty years learning to bake the perfect. I'm gonna go ahead and say pie. I think I think I need to best. Uh, best him in a pie making contest. That sounds excellent. It's a, uh, though I do imagine that the Dread Pirate Roberts uh, could could bake an excellent pie. So it might be a, a challenging thing that you're that you're attempting here. Yeah, um, perfect, perfect crust, perfect filling, perfect lattice top. Yeah, I, I think twenty years I, is makes sense. I love it. It's a great idea. Uh, it would be a challenge, uh, a fight to the death over pie making. Um, yeah, what I about think you? for me, it would be, I, I think I'd probably go with, um, like, costume design. Mm. I'd want to, de- to, to dedicate 20 years of my life to mastering the art of cosplay and then challenge the Dread Pirate Roberts to a cosplay challenge to the death. I saw some of your uh, costumes a couple of weeks ago. I think I think you're on a good path already. Yeah, I I really love it, but I am very much an amateur. Um, 
So I'd be willing to put 20 years of my life into it to learn how to do this and become a master. Got it. Uh, well, my question for you. So Wesley, at the beginning of the story, says, as you wish, which means I love you. What phrase do you use that is a stand-in for I love you? Hmm. Well, I do say I love you a lot, mm. so there's that. That's but again, this do. seems too easy. But what I would probably say is, yes, I will scratch your back. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, because there is nothing that tells me that someone loves me more than when they say, yes, they will scratch my back. Mm, so it's a projection as well. Uh, as... A little bit, yes, it is. Uh, but my kids are always asking me this as well, so you know. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's got some utility there. You you passed on the back scratching desire to to your offspring. Yes. And what about you? What would you do? Uh, I think mine would be dinner is ready. Mm. Uh, Excellent. This, this is also a really good test to find out if Mary listens to the podcast because uh, I'm sure she'll tell me that she disagrees with what I chose. If she listens. <laughs> so we'll find out. Stay tuned. Sounds good. All right. So we will chat next week when we watch a goofy movie from, uh, it's our second entry from 1995. So that'll be a fun one. That's one that I think you've seen a lot, but I have never seen. So it'll be a completely fresh feeling for me. I am so excited about this one. I cannot even say it is one of my favorite films of all time. All right. Well, I'm excited. All right. See you next week. See ya. Bye.